Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all across the world. And my very special guest today, calling me from California, is Jonathan Tijerina. Welcome to the show, sir. Howdy, Rob. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, uh, not a problem. Glad that you're here. And uh, Jonathan, you are a third-year med student uh, out at Stanford University, if uh, if any of you have ever heard of that uh, distinguished institution. Um, <laughs> and uh, you also did some undergrad at Baylor, so uh, not too far from where I'm currently calling you from in Dallas. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. I'm on a research year now, so I'm not taking any class, but just doing uh, research with the hospital. Awesome. And uh, a lot of that research has to do with uh, with type 1 diabetes in a lot of different ca- uh, categories and, and capacities. So I'm really looking forward to kind of digging into some of those. But before we get into that, uh, why don't you tell everybody how uh, you joined the type 1 diabetes family and give us your uh, diagnosis story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think my uh, my diagnosis story, you know, is pretty. I think pretty classic in terms of the symptoms that I experienced. But um, it went pretty long before I was diagnosed, just because I'm from a really rural town called Marshall in Texas. I'm not sure if you uh, if you've heard of that guy, but <laughs> it's pretty small. Uh, it's right next to Shreveport, Louisiana, a really small town. So, in my you know my sort of upbringing, we don't really go to the doctor unless you're like you know really really hurting. So, uh, I went for a long you know six or seven months before we even thought about maybe going to the doctor for any of the symptoms that I was having. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think the the first time we actually thought, you know, it was just like I thinned out, but I was also getting tall and I was tired, but you know, I was also 13. So it's like, Oh, is this something wrong or is this just, you know, puberty? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's interesting when, you know, you're diagnosed at different ages because there's so many changes going around, you know, especially in your teens. Uh, and if you're a runner or an athlete, like you could just be, you know, losing weight because you're getting into shape or one thing or another, you know, getting taller. Um, and also I had a guest on, uh, who sort of really reinforced something for me for people who are diagnosed with anything in rural areas is that just a different relationship with the hospital, um, Mm -hmm. and with access to healthcare. So, um, while, you know, you know, for us city dwellers, uh, we might, it's an easy, you know, maybe 20 minute drive or five, 10 minute drive to the hospital. Uh, for others, it can be quite a hike. So, uh, quite an ordeal. So that's, uh, you know, interesting. And, and yet, uh, another perspective, another wrench to throw in the equation of type one diabetes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you, you were diagnosed at 13, any, uh, you know, as you were kind of coming out of that sort of hospital experience, anything that stands out? Yeah, well, so the with the initial diagnosis, I remember the first time we actually thought something was wrong. Was I was trying to do football at the time, and um, it was coincidentally a blessing in disguise for me because I kept passing out in football practice. You know, we were doing two-a-days in the summer in Texas, which is like 
combined with the dehydration of undiagnosed diabetes, like the worst possible combination. Right. And, you know, yeah. now you see, you know, and I think about it, you know, a lot, not as much when you're younger, but today, you know, 100, 100 degrees, you know, not on the field, just like your everyday temperature. Yeah. Uh, throw in the humidity and, you know, being on the field. So upwards of 20, 30 degrees hotter, plus you're inside a helmet, just a recipe yeah. for a disaster without anything else. Yeah, exactly. No, it was brutal. So yeah, I kept passing out in practice and they, uh, the football coaches actually told me they thought I should try something different, uh, and referred me to track, which is what I ended up doing in college. Um, so it was kind of like, a you know, a good thing that came out of a bad thing there. Yeah. It's funny how that works, isn't it? So yeah, yeah if I'm, if I remember correctly, you, you ran the mile in, uh, for Baylor, like a great, like a huge and awesome track school. I did. Yeah. I ran the mile and the half mile. Uh, I was, uh, kind of press ganged in a running cross country every year, which is a little bit outside my wheelhouse, you know, a 10 K with Hills and, and whatnot is like pretty brutal for a miler, but <laughs> yeah, I did it. It kept me in good shape for track for sure. It's sort of one of those things where it's like, you just say yes to one too many things. And before you know it, you're spilling down the finish line of a cross country race and people are passing <laughs> out. That's, that's something, this is way <laughs> off topic, but I think that's yeah. something that everyone should experience is like the finish line of a competitive cross country race. Oh my um, gosh. Because, you know, I was a, I was an athlete in college and, you know, when you're a football player, a basketball player, you sort of, I think it's just whatever alpha male syndrome, like you, yeah. you, you see that you have these athletes that are like the tier one, maybe like, you know, football, basketball, like the big school at, you know, yeah. at a big school, you're like, you know, everybody's in the public eye and then you don't really <laughs> think about cross country, but man, that finish line experience, the last like hundred yards is one of the most brutal things I've ever witnessed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was so grateful that they didn't really expect me to be, you know, top finisher or like have an incredible time as a miler because, oh man, the people that were really trying for those incredible times were just like, you know, you see people just drop like flies the last 200 meters, just literally just pass out because they're trying so hard. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And like just the, uh, and the reason I got to experience one is because I, I was a sports management major in college. Uh -huh. As part of our study and coursework, we had to uh, in one of our event classes had to actually like go and choose from three or four different events and work them. And one of those, uh, was a cross country event, like actually work the finish line and help to, you know, wrangle. Cause everybody's got to stay in line for like the finish placements. And, mm -hmm. you know, once you cross the finish line, it can be pretty hectic. So I was like oh, a yeah. wrangler. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, and I was so underprepared. I cannot, cannot say how underprepared I was yeah. for what I was going to see. Uh, people passing out, people crying and like throwing up and like yeah, everywhere, you know, just really, really like violent. And I just so under, I was so underprepared for what I saw that day. So <laughs> anyway, I had to, I had to get that small story out. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, long story short with diagnosis, I went to, um, Guatemala with my dad, who's a bilingual pastor, uh, in our area. And there was this big pastor's conference in Guatemala. So he went down as a family, you know, I was having all the classic symptoms of diabetes. Like I was sleeping all the time and I was so tired and uh, I had to pee all the time. And uh, I remember going through the jungle one time, actually. We were going to this really city, this really pretty city called Antigua. And it was like an hour and a half, two hour ride through the jungle. And w we were driving through this like sketch jungle dirt road. And I was like, tried to talk to the driver and saying like, I really have to use the bathroom. And the guy was like, no, you don't understand. We can't stop here. Like we really can't stop in the jungle. <laughs> And so I was, I was hurting so bad all the way to this beautiful city, but then it ended up being a gorgeous experience. And isn't that funny? Like, 
and, and I even think to today, like if I was leading a group and a kid was trying to tell me to, that he had to use the restroom, yeah. I, would, I would think it would be the like the least important thing in the world. But for somebody with type one, I remember I saw The Aviator, which is you know the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio about how uh-huh. he used. It's a really long movie. I think it was probably a week before I was diagnosed and I'm sure I was drinking like a large Coke in the theater. Oh, yeah. Cause why, oh, yeah. cause why exactly. wouldn't you? Right. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. And, and so I think I probably went to the restroom like 50 times in that movie. And oh. I remember hating the movie because yeah. I just felt so miserable trying to go in and out and it was embarrassing. I was like, I feel like these people just think I'm going outside or I'm doing weird teenager stuff. Yeah. And, <laughs> And it was just a you know traumatic moment. So yeah, in in those oh, things sure. they seem trivial, right? Yeah. And and yet, like for you at that time, as you know, as as all type ones know, like if when you have to go to the bathroom before diagnosis, like you have to go. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, of course. And we were eating, you know, just the the carbiest everything there too. Like we had fried plantains and like sugar cream sauce for breakfast every day, and all kinds of rice and delicious uh, fruits for lunch and dinner, and. It was probably, you know, and like you said, I feel like at that time in my life, I was thirsty. I was reaching for like a Coke or I was reaching for like a, an orange juice, you know, not water. <laughs> yeah, right. Just your classic teenager, teenager nutrition, right? You're just grabbing yeah, exactly. whatever you can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I remember even on the day I was diagnosed, I was kind of nauseous and uh, after, I think I vomited early mm-hmm. in the morning. And of course, what calms your stomach better than a Dr. Pepper? Uh, I think that's in almost every, in every medical journal, they would tell you that. Yeah, um, definitely. So that surely affected my, uh, my first blood sugar test that I ever took. I no doubt uh, like 60 carbs that. in a can of Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Um, great. So after, after that, like, you know, your, your diagnosis, like you get through this six, seven months, like you've gone overseas, like what, what happened, you know, when you, when was the final, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah. So, well, my mom was telling me, you know, in retrospect, and we've talked about it since then, but she was saying, my mom's an occupational therapist. So she works in the hospital, you know, it's usually more of like a physical therapy sort of rehabilitation setting, but she's seen a lot of diseases. And she was thinking, um, in Guatemala was actually the, right when we got back from Guatemala was like the big, the big moment. She was thinking she was going to get me checked out for hypothyroidism or something because I was so tired and sluggish all the time. Um, but when we got back, uh, the night we got back, I was feeling really crappy and, and I was telling mom that, you know, I really think I need to go to a doctor. And she said, okay, you know, I'll take you to the doctor tomorrow. We'll get, we'll arrange for an appointment like tomorrow or this week. And then that night I ended up waking up and throwing up just repetitively, you know, like 10 times and dry heaving for an hour or two. And then, uh, I fell asleep finally and they were like, okay, we'll, we'll definitely take you to a doctor in the morning. And it still wasn't, you know, hospital then it was like, oh, we'll take you to a doctor. Yeah, you'll be okay. Um, so they were thinking that I was had had some sort of tropical stomach bug, uh, from Guatemala at this point. Um, and then, uh, I got up and I was going to go to school and check out to go see the doctor later. And then I ended up passing out that morning and they're like, okay, no, we're taking you to the doctor now. So I went to see the doctor and uh, he told me later that he really, uh, before we even said anything, he said he could smell that fruity, uh, you know, ketone sort of smell on my breath. And he was like, oh, I think this kid's diabetic. We need to get him tested for diabetes. Isn't that funny how like, and I don't know about you and like your high blood sugar symptoms now, mm-hmm. but I remember times where, you know, I've been, you know, in the two, three hundreds and have not felt any sort of 
you know, ketone flavor or whatever in, in my mouth. But then other times where maybe not even as high, where I definitely feel that. Is that sort of weird? Like yeah, you, you so wonder, true. you wonder who like didn't know what they were lo- like looking for and still smelled that weird ketone type uh, ketoacidosis flavor, I guess, or like aroma on. on yeah. The, I don't know, just yeah. a weird thing oh, to weird. think about. Such a strange, yeah. It's, it's so strange to try to explain to people too, because it's like a, it's it's yeah, it's it's really like a taste slash mouthfeel thing where you're like, oh, yeah, I think I'm high. I think my blood sugar is high. Yeah, and I think I've heard some people say it feels like they have like a metallic flavor in their mouth or exactly. like a yeah, that's, very, I it very strange, uh, just association with with <laughs> with diabetes. Mm. Um, so yeah, so you, right then, you, I mean, you got diagnosed and then, uh, what was the, I know sometimes you, you know, mentioned being from a small town, um, the diabetes education is a little bit limited compared to other health systems where they have, you know, a bigger team. Uh, mm-hmm. do you remember what the sort of outlook was for you, um, you know, from your doctor when you were diagnosed? Yeah. So I, um, yeah, I think my, my experience with diabetes education was pretty, uh, pretty bad. Uh, I think that. We, in my own hometown, they didn't really tell me much about um, the insulin that I was going to be taking. You know, I was doing multiple daily injections with vial and syringe uh, for about three weeks after I got diagnosed. And I was taking just kind of a flat dose with every meal. I wasn't carb counting or anything like that. So my sugars were super unpredictable in terms of getting high or low because I wasn't adjusting the dose at all. Um, and then eventually I went to go see a pediatric endocrinologist in this, in this town that's about an hour away from where I live. Um, and he got me on a sliding scale. Um, we went back, I think, once a year after that. And I still, my blood sugars were still very sort of chaotic. Um, but, you know, I hadn't really been educated in terms of why it's important to control them. I, I really didn't know that there were any sort of consequences for for not controlling them. And, you know, at the time in my life, I was just like a 13-year-old kid who was not, probably not going to be super uh, responsive to limiting my diet or limiting limiting my activity anyways. But um, I didn't find out about really how to carb count and um, uh, re- adjusting my diet uh, until I got to Baylor, actually about, um, I guess, six years later, six years after I was diagnosed. And, you know, that's, you know, looking back on that, like you didn't know what you didn't know, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you're a 13-year-old kid. You're like, hey, my doctor told me to do this. You sort of don't question it, mm-hmm. right? I, I mean, there's just... And that's, I think, something that I've been sort of opened up to in the last few years is, you know, when your doctor tells you something, you just sort of assume, at least I have, and I don't want to generalize, but at least I assume that they know exactly what they're talking about and they've dealt with it before and it's not something that they really ever question. So mm-hmm. why, why would I question it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. um, did you what, – what was – when you went to Baylor and they were like, hey, you need to do this differently – looking back, what did that, what kind of like response did that, uh, elicit from you? Yeah, it was, uh, it was really, I think, um, frustrating for me at the time because, you know, when I got to Baylor, the, my endocrinologist was like, oh, well, you've only seen a doctor once a year. You're supposed to be seeing a doctor three or four times a year. You've only done your A1C once a year. You're supposed to be doing it three or four times a year. And no, it's not okay that your A1C is like 10, you know, it's, and I was just so taken aback. And then, you know, of course, I'm um, kind of a scientifically minded sort of um, algorithmic thinker. So I was like, okay, well, what are, you know, what are the steps? What are the changes that I need to do? 
And um, even in Waco, my endocrinologist only really gave me a brochure and uh, wasn't super involved with my actual um, treatment. Um, but I, she did push me to get a Dexcom, which I think was the biggest thing. Uh, it was a huge change for me in college, and it really, really helped me uh, in terms of diabetes management. I think I definitely, you know, I felt some sort of um, frustration, maybe a little bit resent of resentment that I, I wasn't really clued in into how exactly the best ways to go about uh, managing my diabetes closely because I wanted to at that point. I didn't know that I hadn't been doing it before that, but then I was I was thinking, you know, I really want to get this dialed in. Yeah, and I think that's a. You know, you are, you are, and, and everyone is to some extent a product of their environment, right? Mm-hmm. And you look back and you, you, you know, as you mentioned, with some sort of resentment or like, how could this happen to me? Or how did I not know better? Or why would they, why would, why did this happen to me? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get, you know, as you kind of grow, get older, and then also just like have a, a little bit more experience you know, hopefully that, you know, becomes a little bit, you know, less, you know, not as hard on yourself or on others, but you know, like you said, you, it's not okay to have an A1C of 10 or like there's, there's a better option. Right. So, um, what did you, you know, what did you think, you know, what do you think was the biggest impact when you realized, Hey, Oh, I do need to go to the doctor more often. Oh, I am learning all these other things. You mentioned you're an algorithmic style scientific thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine you felt a whole lot better, especially as an athlete, um, as you sort of got more exposed to more information um, in your, you know, journey with type one. Yeah, no, that was uh, it was huge for me in terms of feeling better on a day to day basis, but also uh, athletic performance wise, you know, because until then I hadn't even been really checking my sugar uh, before races or before runs. I would just you know, if I felt okay, then I would just gobble a bunch of gummies and go for whatever length of run I wanted to. Um, and that was, you know, I wasn't even carrying snacks with me while I was exercising, actually. Uh, and, you know, in, in retrospect, that's that's like so shocking and scary to me now because I was going on, um, you know, 10, 15-mile runs with the team and I wouldn't have anything with me at all. No one would. We were just running in our little skimpy short shorts and our, you know, tennis shoes. Right. And, I mean, like if there's anything – you know, any that, you know, you'd look back if I only knew what I knew now or then yeah. what I knew now. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously like there's a, a huge amount of like pre- preparation and, you know, tossing, you know, whether it's, you know, gummies or gel packs or Gatorade or, you know, insulin or whatever before you prepare for any kind of exercise, but no, much less long distance intense running. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, you know, it's, it's tough. Like there's, you know, so many factors into not just feeling good, but also being prepared to, you know, run a very intense, you know, track and field event. Exactly. Yeah. I think so. My treatment extra athletics in college actually drove me to really try to dial in my treatments, um, for myself as well as my athletic performance. So I ended up getting the Dexcom when I was in a junior in college and I ended up going on an Omnipod when I was a senior the Omnipod, the Dexcom was just wonderful. I mean, I, if I had to pick one diabetes tool, it would definitely be the Dexcom. Um, but the the Omnipod was huge for me too because before then I'd been using, uh, you know, Lantus injections with a Humalog sliding scale. And the Lantus it was just background active for 24 hours. But whenever I would run, um, you know, there was no way to turn that Lantus off when I was going on these – 15 mile. And then when I was a senior, I was doing hundred mile weeks. So I was running like 20, 20 mile runs on Saturdays, like every week. 
and the, there was no way to turn off this background insulin. But with the with the Omnipod or with any pump, really, um, you could you could shut that off an hour beforehand, and your sugars would be way way less likely to get low on the run, which was huge for me. Uh, and my team was super supportive when I finally realized that I needed to be carrying gels and things around. So I would pack my little running shorts pocket with uh, you know three or four gels that have like 30 carbs in them, and then my teammates would bring some. Sometimes a trainer would meet us out at halfway points, so 10, 12 miles out. She'd meet us with gummies and Gatorade just in case I was low or anyone needed to rehydrate. Um, so I think that the athletic community at Baylor was huge in terms of supporting me to get better control um, over my blood sugars. Uh, it was really, really wonderful experience to have everyone helping me out and you know, asking me, are you okay? Or asking me, um, you know, do you need anything? Or just, just reassuring to have people out there with me. And I think that's a really important thing, and I want to focus on it here for a minute because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're on a team, obviously, like you have, you know, the support of your teammates. I think on good teams, I think comes as a, a byproduct of that. Um, for elite athletes who are, you know, performing on the college level or you know, elite high school level or professional level, mm-hmm. um, a relationship with your athletic trainer sort of is mandatory, but also can go a couple different ways. Um, for me, when I was evaluating college really, or colleges where I wanted to, you know, pursue, uh, an athletic career, I, my parents and I, it was really important to us to go and talk to the athletic training staff and, you know, talk to them about, you know, what I experienced so far and some things that could come up and things that we needed to think about. Um, how would you, you know, looking back, you know, and, and after a great college career and, and, you know, um, coming out of that successfully, what would you tell somebody who was, you know, either concerned or what are the questions that they should ask or, um, you know, what did you learn from, you know, your experience with on the college level with your athletic training staff and how did you approach those things? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the athletic training staff was, was a huge part of me, um, getting better control. Even before I got the Omnipod or the Dexcom, I remember when I had a really bad A1C my sophomore year, I went and talked to our um, our head athletic trainer. His name's Kevin. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man. Just so, so nice and really supportive. Um, and I talked to him. I said, hey, bro, Kev, I, I'm really, really struggling with this. It's hard for me um, to go to dining halls and constantly eat with these other cross-country guys who are you know just scarfing down carbs on carbs on carbs and keep up with them in practice when I'm having to not eat those things or if I do eat those things having to feel really bad afterwards um, physically (laughs) and uh, he was just the most supportive um, and he was like look we can come up with a customized plan for you nutrition wise and support wise from the team and we're all here to help you not only the staff but but your teammates you know and I think that one thing I learned from that whole experience and one thing that I would – a piece of advice I'd love to give to any diabetic uh, out there tr- aspiring to um, athletics at any level is not to be ashamed of the fact that you have diabetes and not to be ashamed of the fact that you have to deal with some concerns that a lot of other people don't have to deal with. Um, that was huge for me and just realizing that none of my teammates are going to hold it against me if I have to stop and eat on a run, you know, none of my teammates are going to hold it against me if I ask them to bring some gels for me. No hiker, if you're out on a trail run and you don't have any carbs with you or you ran out of carbs and you're low, I've, I've done this before. I had to stop and ask hikers for, for snacks, you know, and I was, I was literally 
I don't know. I felt super, super shaky. I had no carbs with me, and I just stopped and said, hey, I'm so, so sorry to bother you, but I'm a diabetic. I think I have a really low blood sugar. I'm wondering if you have any snacks. And they were the nicest, most sharing, caring people, you know? And I think that's – man, that's like a super powerful story and an experience that you sort of have to – you know, you can't really prepare for until it happens to you. You can't really experience – but, you know, that can change your entire outlook on, you know, on life almost. And I don't, I don't want to like, you know, cheapen it by just kind of giving that hokey kind of answer I just gave. But um, <laughs> I think until you have that type of experience where you're like in a, in a place where you have to say, hey, I need help. I need to ask somebody for this. Mm-hmm. You really don't know, you know, what, what you're getting into, right? And I, and I don't know. I think the power of asking is something that we don't talk enough about in culture, as athletes, as people with, type, with diabetes, um, as men even. And I think um, it's something that can really like push you and, and really help you level up because – you know, when you when you realize that, you know, people, those things that you're telling yourself, those fears, oh, I don't know if I should ask someone for help, when you do and you say, oh, this was great, this wasn't as hard as I thought, this really helped me, um, it can really, like, open up a whole new world for you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's a big realization in your mind when um, you realize that everyone is so willing to help, yeah? Yeah, I think um, two things for me before we get back to you, like um, – one, like this podcast is entirely built off of and standing on the shoulders of giants and asking for help for other people. And I've been so uh, fortunate and blessed by, you know, people's help and time uh, being willing to come on the show and talk about their experiences and then share those with other people. Uh, those are fantastic. And then another one very similar to you. I remember being on a hike in Colorado with my cousin when I was probably like a sophomore, maybe in college and mm-hmm. we went on this hike and I have this sort of joke uh, with myself whenever I go on a hike, it always ends up being this like way bigger experience than I yeah. bargained for. Like, I'm like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll go on a one mile hike for an hour and it ends up being like a five hour, you know, five to 10 mile experience. And, um, this was no, no different. And like, we didn't bring water. We were in Colorado. We like went on this very pretty advanced hike with no water. And I didn't have any like, you know, anything to treat my diabetes and we got like halfway through and I was like, man, I'm in trouble. Um, yeah. And these people that we passed just like, you know, similar to your experience were so giving and so nice and gave me a, a, like a 32 ounce Gatorade and really helped me get through this, um, you know, this hike, which could have been, you know, really bad had I not, yeah. you know, had they not been there. So uh, yeah, I would definitely encourage anyone. If you're ever in trouble, please ask people for help. You would be surprised how giving people are even in today's uh, time where you'd think, you know, you'd look out there and say, Oh man, like no one's going to want to help each other today. Uh, couldn't, you know, in my experience, um, couldn't be more the opposite. People have been so giving and uh, are so willing to help you if you just ask. Absolutely echo that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So let's get back to 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 your story here. Um, you know, you're in college, uh, you're stabilizing your blood sugars, you are, uh, you know, getting help from your trainers and doctors and teammates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not only improving your, you know, A1Cs and performance uh, as a diabetic, but also as an athlete. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What kind of impact did that have on you as an athlete um, from a confidence perspective um, and kind of everywhere in between? What did that give you as, uh, you know, how did that 
encourage you to kind of live your life and, and continue to, you know, grow as a type one diabetic and an athlete and a, you know, person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, yeah, confidence from a confidence perspective, it was huge. Just knowing that going into a race, especially one thing that I was just, I was so grateful that I am um, built to be a miler or, you know, a middle distance ish runner, because, you know, in a collegiate mile, you're, you're racing for, for, you know, four and a half minutes or less. And, um, that's so friendly towards blood sugars because you don't have to really take a big snack before that. Um, you know, you can eat 15 grams of carbs like an hour beforehand when you start warming up and you're good to go for that whole race, which was awesome for me. But just knowing that my blood sugars weren't going to do something unexpected, um, you know, and, and even if they did, I had the technology to enable me to respond to that. Well, I think was huge. And, um, from a performance perspective, I think just getting them under better control helped regulate my weight, helped regulate, um, my mood and my, my drive to work out well. And, um, it was just really, really good for me physically also. And it culminated in, culminated in a really good senior season for me. Um, but I, I would, yeah, I think a huge part of that was getting my sugar under control. And, you know, I think, you know, when I think, yeah. think back to, you know, basketball games where, you know, I, I and I guess I'll, I'll put that on pause for a second. I was, I sort of resisted having a CGM and I really couldn't tell you why. Um, yeah. I think, not from a, you know, an idea, but maybe I just didn't want something else attached to me or I thought, you know, that I wouldn't be able to live the lifestyle that I live if I had a CGM on or something. And I mean, most sure. of that was just like me in my own head and not making decisions yeah. that were you know, based on anything logical. But, uh -huh. um, you know, I, I remember performance wise when my blood sugar was higher and I would test it and I, and I was playing poorly or performing poorly, of course, like, yeah, I knew that this was due to my blood sugar. Uh, and on, on the other side of that, when my blood sugar was in range and I, you know, prepared accordingly, uh, to, and prepared and got everything in line and, you know, made, really made sure that I approached everything the right way and my diet was on point and I was taking the right amount of insulin. My mm -hmm. performance was no surprise, much better. Yeah. Much uh, better. <laughs> and, and so, you know, for me, you know, and, and, and I think I, what I want to know for you, like, is there any time where you looked at like a competition or a particular moment and you said, Hey, I know I feel good. I'm going to really push and, um, and, and, you know, be confident in what I'm doing. And I, and I can attribute some of my success as an athlete to my preparation and my good, you know, numbers from, as from a diabetes perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of my best seasons, um, uh, in cross school, my best season in cross country was my uh, my grad school year. So I finished up um, I finished up my undergrad at Baylor. Uh, did a a degree in biology uh, in four years, but I had redshirted my freshman year, so I had all, an extra year of eligibility left for track and cross. So I hung around for a one year. It was like uh, regular semesters, but then you also had to do a summer's worth of work to graduate in one year, um, master's degree in biology. And so during that time. When in cross country season, I had really low um, in class attendance load. It was more like research and lab work sorts of things. So I was really able to customize my own daily schedule and you know regulate what I was eating and work out at exactly when I wanted to work out. And so my sugars were really good um, during that time period, and my cross country times got all, a good bit better. And uh, ended up finishing the season uh, it was a huge, huge shock and. 
uh, honor for me. I ended up winning the um, Big 12 Scholar Athlete of the Year uh, that season. And that was that was just huge for me, I think, because it, it really validated for me that doing that work and, you know, getting those things all, all settled in uh, paid off. Yeah, and I mean, what a, you know, a congrats, you know, obviously, congratulations. And, and Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's a huge accomplishment. But also, you know, just internally, like, hey, wow, I was able to get my, I had these great sugars, and I was having this great performance, and I have all this confidence, and I'm feeling really good. Um, yeah. That's, you know, what a great story, right? What a great, um, you know, thing to just be able to tell people with not only diabetes, but any other kind of um medical or injury related hurdle that you have to come over and then be able to come through that and um, come out of there with a, you know, a non-diabetic award like Big 12 Conference uh, Scholar Athlete of the Year. That's yeah, really, that's exactly. incredible. Yeah, it's so gratifying. Yeah, incredibly gratifying. And the same was true of that track season. I was able to carry that over um, and get some really good, you know, best personal best times in track uh, my last season, which is always great. I actually, my dad ran for Nike back in the day and his personal best in the mile was a 406. And I only beat his personal best, um, my last two races in college, which was also a huge, uh, you know, win for me. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. First of all, that's not only a super fast mile, but yeah, what a great way to, uh, to say, Hey, you know, finally get the, the monkey off your back and beat your dad's yeah. time. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so from there, um, you know, graduating and not only graduating undergrad, but getting your master's um, in a short amount of time, a year, obviously. Um, coming out of that, where did you, you know, where were you looking to, I guess, you know, what, what were you looking to do next, both as a, in your career uh, and then also as an athlete, what did, uh, you know, and a diabetic, what were those things that you said, Hey, you know, what, what's next for me now? Yeah. Um, so I think coming from undergrad, um, I was looking at going into med school. I, when I got to Baylor, I was thinking I wanted to do something in politics. Uh, and then I thought I wanted to do sociology and then I took a biology class and I really just fell in love with the sciences and eventually settled on medical school. So, you know, I took my entrance exams and did some research and did some TAing and then um, was interviewing. And I came out to California and my friends, my classmates make fun of me for this so much, but I literally came out here and thought to myself, this weather is the most perfect running weather I've ever experienced in my whole life. <laughs> so just like cliche, right? Like, hey, California, yes. great weather. This is super great. It was huge for me, though. Yeah, because, you know, I'm sure, as you know, in Dallas, um, it gets it's so hot in Texas all year. And then it gets so cold and miserable for like two months. And then, you know, springtime is nice. Fall is nice. But summer is just, oh, it's brutal. And you come out here and it's, you know, 70 and sunny almost every day. You can't beat that, especially if you want to be outside or running like um just to give people who don't know, I mean, yeah, you hear Texas is hot and California is great, but like um, this summer I moved close enough to my office where I could walk to work um, and it's not even, it's probably half a mile, so not a long walk. And in the summertime when it's 100 degrees and humid, it is, the, yeah. it is no, I, I do not want to do it. It is awful. Yeah. <laughs> you're sweaty, you know, you're, 
you know, you got to, you know, bring a separate t-shirt or like, you know, you know, put your, put your actual work shirt in your backpack or something because it ruins, you know, whatever your, whatever your outfit was for the day, you are soaked through with sweat after that type of walk. So, you know, for you as a, you know, a distance or medium distance runner, uh, yeah, it makes total sense going to California in Northern California to, uh, yeah, that's the perfect mix for perfect weather for a runner. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm kind of a hiking enthusiast. And I like climbing and, and I, I, I've skiing is a recent, I'm a recent skiing convert, but it's just so cool being able to be out here and, you know, go surfing, um, you know, drive an hour or 30 minutes to go surfing. And then I have mountains right here to go hike and beautiful trails to go run and then drive three or four hours to Tahoe and go skiing. And it's all just right here. It's just so cool for me. And that was honestly really big when I was picking a medical school to go to. Uh, Stanford is super, obviously an incredible institution and the research experiences and the clinical experiences here are really, really cool too. But they really bill it here uh, as a school, um, as a place that allows you a lot of freedom to do what you want with your spare time. You know, they're not locking us in the library all day. And um, I really have enjoyed taking advantage of that out here. So that that was a huge part of picking a place that I wanted to go to um, for medical school. Yeah, no doubt. That's, I mean, obviously Stanford, um, as an institution, like you said, carries a lot of weight from a name perspective, but then, you know, finding that fit, I think you can't really put, you know, whether it's a college or a a university or a graduate school program or a post-grad or Mm -hmm. a work environment or a career like culture and fit, uh, goes so far. And I think, I don't think you know that until you experience it. Yeah. Uh, until you really feel the empowerment uh, of, hey, I am in the right place and mm-hmm. I'm getting the benefit of the of being here. Um, and so, yeah, a fant- you know, great for you to find that. And then also what pays off from a diabetes perspective as well is not only do you have the same re- – um, do you have better resources, but also you get to experience what, uh, hey, not as much stress. Um, or, uh, and the benefits of that and, or, Hey, better resources and the benefits of that, um, mm-hmm. on your, you know, health from a health perspective. So, uh, yeah, great that you got to do that. Um, yeah. so now, um, you know, kind of going into, you know, your medical school post-grad, uh, and now you're in, uh, you're doing a research year, so not as much in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, what things have you found from a diabetes perspective, um, you know, in those moments, both, uh, you know, learning about it from a clinical perspective, but also, um, you know, living in it. And I'm kind of rambling on now, but I know you're involved <laughs> in a lot of other uh, outside of um, outside of the schoolwork and the study. I know you're involved in a lot of other organizations. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the buzzword for me coming here in terms of diabetes was 100% just the community. Um, this is something that I had never really had uh, back in Texas. I think I knew two type 1 diabetics when I was in high school. And that's only because, you know, we went to the nurse's office at the same time at lunch to take our insulin. And then I got to college and I didn't know, uh, I don't think I knew any other diabetics, um, maybe one or two uh, at Baylor. Um, but I wasn't super close, um, you know, and so I didn't get that word of mouth uh, advantage that that I got when I got here. People, I really enjoyed the support was huge. I, I linked up with this awesome organization called Carb DM, 
Um, it's a Bay Area type 1 diabetes organization that just has so many cool programs. And um, uh, Tamar uh, Safari is the uh, director. And I, I met up with her and we talked about some, some things that I wanted to get involved with. And we ended up um, creating the Bay Area, Bay Area Running Group, which was uh, so, so fun. And we're starting things up again this January um, with that with that group. But it's basically um, my idea was that it took me so long to figure out how to manage my sugars on long runs that it's something that I really wanted to pass on um, to people who, especially people who are just diagnosed. Um, and so that that was a really cool experience for me. And I ended up actually meeting um, a great. Uh, uh, local high school runner here who was recently diagnosed with uh, diabetes and I was coaching him over this Christmas break and we're going to pick up coaching here again in another couple of weeks but you know, he was diagnosed his his junior or his sophomore year in uh, high school and um, you know our my endocrinologist linked me up with him and he came to the running group and now doing some coaching with him so that's been super super cool to get to share that knowledge um, with a group of people who I'm hoping I, they don't have to go through the same lows and highs and and all kinds of crazy stuff that I did to figure it out. Man, what? How rewarding is that? That's so cool. I'm, I'm like, uh, man, what a cool. I'm, I'm kind of getting like goosebumps a little bit because, like, you know, both from a coaching perspective. First of all, I think like there's nothing more rewarding than to get to help to somebody, um, you know, find and do something better that they really care about and mm-hmm. and point them in the right direction and offer you know uh, a little bit of you know guidance there in coaching. But also from a health perspective. Um, and a diabetes perspective, like I would love nothing more than to get to, uh, have that opportunity. So, um, you know, again, like, wow, what a cool thing to, you know, get to utilize all of your different areas of expertise and pour that into somebody else's life. Uh, what a cool thing. Exactly. Yeah, that was, that was super, super cool. And I, I got to sit on a couple of panels with my endocrinologist, um, Dr. Marina Bassina. She's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful physician at Stanford. Cannot say enough good things about her. Um, and, uh, talk to kids about, you know, what it's like going through college with diabetes, you know, what it's like doing athletics with diabetes. And that was just, you know, some of the most rewarding things that I've done here, honestly, and, and something that I felt, um, was lacking, um, back in Texas, probably mostly because I, I, you know, I had a community already in the, in the athletics at Baylor and that I wasn't seeking that out. I'm sure it exists there and I'm sure it's a wonderful, wonderful thing for people who are able to find that, but I didn't find it then. And, uh, I wish I had because it's been an incredible experience here. Um, and it's, go ahead. Uh, it's kind of interesting, right? When, cause you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I was, you know, similar when I was in college, I, I wasn't really involved. I was sort of doing what I was doing, sort of kind of one track mind and not really looking for, like you said, that buzzword of community. And I didn't yeah. know what I was missing out on. Um, and now, you know, the last two, three years now getting more involved in the type one community has been, I can't tell you how much it's, you know, what the, you know, the ceiling on that is in terms of reward and benefit into my life. Um, it's been incredible. So, um, yeah, wow. What a cool, you know, cool benefit, um, you know, to that. And I'm so glad to hear that you're, you know, more involved and the, you know, benefits that you're getting from that. Um, I know I want to talk a little bit. You mentioned your awesome endocrinologist there. Um, in uh, When you sent your first email to me, what, something that stood out was that you're on a closed loop system, uh, not the not a hybrid closed loop system uh, mm-hmm. from Medtronic, but one where you use your Dexcom G5. 
Um, I'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about that and how it has benefited your uh, your work life, both as a uh, as a physician. Because I know, I, man, I was when I was researching uh, your bio. I think you mentioned looking into a product or a product, a research project about doctors who are T1D who don't go into other fields. It like influences the fields because there's longer, they're afraid of getting low blood sugars during surgery. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so a talk a little bit about that project and B, uh, talk a little bit about uh, being on that hybrid closed loop type, um, uh, with your Dexcom and how that's impacted your life with diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. So this, these are huge examples, I think, of the opportunities available at an institution like Stanford and probably a lot of academic institutions. If you just take the initiative and, and go talk to people, they're so willing to help. Uh, so two projects that I picked up with my endocrinologist recently. One is this um, medical school class that we're actually we, we're registered. We're ready to go. Uh, it starts in spring and I'll be TAing it, which I'm really excited about. Um, but, you know, she it started with this conversation where she told me that sometimes in the hospital, um, people will misprescribe insulin um, because they don't understand the terminology and they don't understand that di- diabetics have vastly different sensitivities, type 1, type 2, and in between people as, as individuals. Um, and so people will get lows, people get highs, people get all kinds of out of range in the hospital because um, the they try to kind of apply this generic formula a lot of times to very individual people. And so we were thinking that, you know, what – what can we do to fix this knowledge gap uh, in the hospital? And so we decided to create this class. We're calling it um, Diabetes 101 for Healthcare Providers. Um, and uh, it's really, really cool idea. We're just really wanting to teach practical skills because in, in the books in med school, you learn a lot about the biochemistry about diabetes. You learn the drugs that you take. You learn how the drugs work. But, you know, we don't learn about closed-loop systems. You know, we, we learn a little bit about insulin pumps. Um, you know, a lot of diabetic or a lot of med students can tell you what the half-life of various insulins are, but they can't tell you like what the doses are or anything like that. So right. these more practical skills we were hoping um, to put into a class. So we created this class and we're really excited. I think it's going to be like kind of an exercise based class where uh, we have the students actively participate in something. For example, one class I'm really excited about is the carb counting class um, where you know, I explain to my friends a lot of times how difficult it is and, and how intricate, you know, our kind of calculations have to be for picking out foods. And one thing I want to do is it's going to be a catered class. So I'll have everyone get their food from the, you know, the little catering line. And then when they're sitting down just about to eat, I'm going to say, hey, pause. I want everyone to take a break and try to guess exactly how many grams of carbs are on this plate and also how many grams of protein. Divide that in half and give me the number you think. And then we'll, uh, we'll kind of talk about the difficulties of counting carbs, you know, and that's some sort of one example of the sort of practical skills that I'm hoping to cultivate and show in this class. That is, that is incredible. And I think two things, man, they, A, when I read that that's something that you were involved in, uh, it made me really excited because as you mentioned, doctors know the half-life of insulin, mm-hmm. but, um, I think a lot of times at type ones, and I know if I asked if I would maybe, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot for this, but if I asked maybe endocrinologists, yeah. um, 
who their most difficult patients are just from a personality perspective, I would probably say type ones because yeah, we get a little bit rigid, a little bit sharp on our edges because yeah. uh, we feel a lot of times I know uh, by just in conversations I've had with others like that their doctors don't understand them and mm-hmm. that their medical providers just, they feel like they understand the disease, but not the day to day life with it. And so I'm super, super glad that that's something that you're ta- uh, that you're uh, taking on. Uh, but also from a from a medical uh, device perspective, I, I was having a conversation uh, on campus at Medtronic Diabetes a few months ago, and I said, "Hey, oh, cool. the term better outcomes totally alienates patients." Yeah, because they don't understand it. They don't know what it means. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's just jargon and buzzwords to them. And so sure. they feel like because, hey, my doctor doesn't understand me. My medical device company doesn't understand me. They don't know what I'm going through. So um, I'm really, really glad that you're able to be on the end of both of those both of those equations, both as a, um, you know, in medical in a medical providing uh, medical practice perspective, and then also as a type one diabetes perspective, because that's really important. And I think that's where a lot of in life, the true experts of, uh, different fields, a lot of breakthroughs happen when you're an expert on one, on not one, but two pieces. So both yeah. in the, as a di- uh, type one diabetic, and then also in the you know medical profession side of things. So not have uh, said that there. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, bravo to you for doing that. So yeah, um, thank you. I, that's super cool, and uh, I know for a fact I'm really glad that um, that we met and got together because I know that we're going to continue to have these conversations. And now I know that they're uh, I'm encouraged by you and the things that you're doing because I I know that those things are going to continue to get better, both on the education side for not only physicians but also type one diabetics. And so that's super, I'm super glad you're doing that. Absolutely, yeah. So the um, the um... Artificial pancreas system. I know we're getting kind of getting a little close here. Yeah. Um, the, the artificial pancreas system was something that I, I heard about through uh, other diabetics, which is you know just another uh, plug for the really cool community that's out there of diabetics who are in tech and diabetics who design you know write code and do all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, I heard about it. it's called Loop. There's another one called OpenAPS. Um, they're both non-FDA approved, and I do have to take a second to say that these are my own personal opinions and not a uh, doctor's opinion or the opinion of Stanford Healthcare or Stanford School of Medicine. These are Jonathan Tierney's opinions. Um, and uh, I heard about it from a friend, and I did a little research into it, and a speaker at one of the CarbDM events I went to was showing us his blood sugars live on the system. Uh, and it's really, really cool. Um, I'm not sh- I think we're not supposed to be using the terms hacked pump anymore because it's not technically hacked. But uh, what you basically do is take an old pump and you force it to accept commands from an app on your phone. And in this case, the app is called Loop. So you can link it actually to – one of the coolest things is that you can link it to any sensor you want. You can link it to Dexcom, you can link it to a G5, G4, or an Inlight. And um, then you put in, of course, your carb sensitivities and all kinds of things like that. And what it does is it's, it takes the um, blood sugar readings from your Dexcom app, and it uses the active amount of insulin on, that you have on board that it's been recording you, you've been getting over the past however many hours, uh, three hours is what I have my insulin uh, decay rate set at and the active amount of carbohydrates you have on board. And then it makes a calculation um, every five minutes with it, with each new reading from your Dexcom about whether or not you should get more or less insulin to bring you back down into range. Um, and it works incredibly well, especially 
uh, for sleep. That's been the biggest thing for me because, you know, I, I would try to keep my sugars really well regulated. And um, so I ended up having my alarms on my Dexcom set at around, I didn't want to get lows at night. And um, I didn't want to get highs at night either because I feel like when I sleep through the night with a high, I feel really bad in the morning. So I had my sugars alarm set at like, I don't know, it was, I think it was 85 and 160 or something. So I was just not sleeping through basically any night. <laughs> you know, I'd get woken up a couple times. And since I've gotten on this system, um, my sleep has been pristine. It's been absolutely incredible. There's no alarms. Um, you do have to take on, uh, you know, a couple more things that you need to charge. Like the pump goes through the batteries quicker because it's constantly making these adjustments. You have to carry around this little radio frequency converter because the phone transmits in Bluetooth, but the pump only receives instructions in radio frequency. So it's another little thing um, that you have to carry around and charge. Um, but the pump, I, I, I can't say enough good things about the system. As long as you tell it roughly how many carbs you're going to eat, and um, I like to bolus before the meal, but uh, it'll adjust, and it'll actually tell you if according to your carb ratios you didn't count correctly. So for example, if, if I say I'm going to eat 45 grams of carbs and take the correct amount of insulin for that, but then my sugar goes up a little bit, It'll correct it for you without you even having to do anything, but also it'll let you know that you probably ate more than 45 grams of carbs. So if you want to log that meal for the future, you can say, oh, that meal I had at Chili's wasn't actually 45 grams of carbs. It was more like 65 grams of carbs, you know? Wow. Uh, so it has these super cool features. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about the system. Obviously, have to consult with um, your endocrinologist about getting it set up um, and you actually have to have a little bit of technological know-how. I, I had a friend set it up for me who's you know, a little bit more technologically inclined. But once it's set up, the system is so easy to use and it works so, so well. That's really cool to hear um, because I think, A, I'll give you a couple, a little bit of background information. I think literally this week I'm going to receive my Medtronic 670G hybrid closed-loop system. So, oh, very, so very, very soon I'm going to be going through sort of the learning curve of the, of having the the artificial intelligence make the decisions for me and uh -huh. kind of kind of releasing my control on that um but having conversations with the people in the community um about you know the loop system like that you were on um and i think that was the thing for me that i i again like just didn't know what i didn't know um but one of the really cool things from the community that um that i came out of it because like you said, you know, you th you'll look at a, at a meal and a plate and after a certain number of years, you're like, yeah, I know how many carbs are in that. I'm going to eat that. Mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes you'll still go high or still go low and it's because it's just a guessing game um, yeah. because you've got more insulin on board or you ate too many carbs or, hey, maybe there's more fat in that meal or more protein and it, your insulin just didn't break down the, the carbohydrates the same way. Mm -hmm. You don't know. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you are what you measure. And so I'm really glad that, you know, there's systems in place and out there where you can learn from these things and you can say, hey, hey, next time you eat this uh, Chinese food, uh, just know that there's going to be more than meets the eye to this meal and you're going to have to give yourself a different dose. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of the one of the coolest features. And, and the retrospective correction is really cool because not only does it let you know um, that you ate more than you thought you did or, you know, somehow you got a little bit more carbs in there than you thought you did, it'll fix it for you um, to an extent. You know, I, I don't think it would, it could uh, keep up right off the bat with like, if you ate like a whole Snickers bar, you didn't tell it that you were going to eat, 
But an extra 15 grams of carbs or an extra 20 grams of, of um, you know, protein-heavy carbs, it can deal with that no problem. Uh, and that's super, super cool and just gives you a little bit of confidence. Um, it also has the uh, kind of a prospective cutoff feature, which is really awesome. If it predicts you're going to go low, it'll cut off um, the insulin that you're getting, which has been really great for me because I hate lows so much. <laughs> and it just, you know, my low, the number of lows that I've had um, – before, when trying to keep my sugar, you know, my A1C in the right place, uh, I feel like I've struggled with lows so much. And, and that makes me shy away from having really good control. And I think this is not a rare story because lows feel so scary and so bad. They do. And I know there's a lot of, I guess I, I, I never, uh, I guess I'm trying, to, I'm trying to word this the best way because I know that a, a great fear of a lot of people with type 1 diabetes is going, so, going too low, losing consciousness, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and you know, potentially dying from, uh, from a low you know, type seizure situation, mm-hmm. right? Exactly, um, yeah. And so the, I'm really excited for the suspend before low um, feature that I'm going to have on the new hybrid closed loop system. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that there are those things that are out there on, the, on your type of loop um, artificial pancreas type, um, type system that allow people to live with more confidence and feel more confident in their control. Um, exactly. because right now I, you know, I feel really confident in my control. I've had a, an A1C, you know, I've never really had out of control blood sugars. My A1C has been between 6.1 and 6.4 for the last year and a half. I feel really good okay. about that. Yeah. Um, but right now I'm going through um, – this is actually, um, as I'm talking to you, day two of my 30-day uh, over-the-counter T1D challenge where I've now gone off of my pump and I'm on like R and NPH over-the-counter insulin just so that I can document this um, for people who maybe lose insurance or yeah. come out, you know, get, uh, lose their job or come upon financial strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to show, hey, that there are ways out there for you to treat your T1D uh, over the counter. So, um, but I am I am wearing a Dexcom and I do have other sort of things yeah. in the background so that I can track these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I've the last two days have been super rocky for me, both with highs and lows, because gotcha. uh, I'm just adjusting to a new treatment. Wow, um, that's cool. I actually have a friend here who's running the loop system with R. Um, because once you buy these things, they're your, they're your property. You know, you can pick up a pump on eBay and you can buy this transmitter on, on GitHub. So if you lose insurance, you can still run this system with, with an over the counter insulin. Wow. Cool. I, uh, I need to, you might have to, after we, uh, you know, get off of this interview, introduce me to that, uh, to your sure, friend because yeah. I'd love to talk to him about that. It'd be really cool. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. And in, in terms of a quick segue, um, the reassurance that this kind of like low, uh, low guard and you know just the fact the confidence that it'll correct if I get a little high has really kind of massaged the fears that I was talking about that I was trying to address with that paper that we mentioned um, so also with my endocrinologist and another really great endocrinologist at Stanford who's also type 1 uh, named Dr. Lal here um, we're we're collecting uh, data on the sorts of factors that go into doctors who have type 1 diabetes specialty choices um, and this has been something that's kind of close to home for me recently because I still have about a year and a quarter until I need to pick what I'm doing. Um, but you know, that's, I had never thought about that before coming to med school ever. Um, are these surgeries going to be long? Am I going to get a low during the surgery? If, if I do, you know, am I even allowed to do long surgeries? Like, do I have to pay extra malpractice insurance or are there some kind of regulation on that? 
Um, turns out there's not, and I'm completely okay to do whatever surgical subspecialties I want. But um, in terms of my own opinion on on the thing on the matter, um, that's been something that's kind of been on my mind a lot lately. And I was thinking, you know, there's no literature out there on that. So we decided to um, pick a survey and uh, start sending it out to type one diabetic doctors out there. Wow, that's really great. And and again, I, I just keep I think I've said it now five times. You don't know uh, what you don't know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah exactly. That's a really interesting thing to think about and something I hadn't thought of until I read your uh, you know, research uh, project or a little background on it because I haven't read the, obviously the entire paper. But uh, just reading about what you were doing and studying and trying to um, create awareness within your community. Yeah, absolutely. That's been, that's been really cool. Um, I write a lot of short fiction too here, which has been really therapeutic, something that I hadn't done before. But um, just a, a sentiment that you kind of, uh, mentioned earlier and like just love to echo the idea of doctor, you know, doctor as patient and how no, no person in, in the, no person in this entire world is one dimensional. Like every single type one diabetic is also something else out there, whether that be son, you know, mother, brother, father, um, doctor or, or any kind of other thing that they're doing with their lives. Yeah. There's so many, you know, there's so much more to people than meets the eye. Um, mm-hmm. And I and you know I I love to that's that's one of those things about the community where, um, you, you get I get to meet people who yes are type one diabetics but also have these other amazing qualities that um, that they are so passionate about um, whether they are athletes or are um, doctors or both or in <laughs> for in your case you know so. Um, it's, it's really, really great. I'm really impressed with it. And I think, you know, you know, from your perspective, I'm really glad we met because I'm sure that we could talk on an interview uh, uh, and continue to unpack all these types of uh, questions and different um, different subject matter for hours. So I'm really yeah, glad we absolutely. got to do this. Um, Jonathan, I um, I know we, uh, we got a late start today, but uh, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to make sure that um, I got this question out because I, it's a question, and you mentioned that you um, that you have um, that you've listened to a few episodes. So I want to make sure that uh, that we get this on here. So the context is important. I'm sure you've heard it. It's uh, if you are if you were in an airport and uh, and your the gate to your flight was about to close. Yeah. And, but you run into somebody who has type one diabetes or has either been struggling with it or been recently diagnosed, uh, and you've only got 30 seconds before they close, uh, your gate. What would you tell that person? What's the one thing you would leave them with in that 30 seconds before they close the door to your gate? Yeah. Uh, I thought that was the funniest question when I first heard it because I, I went on a vacation to Iceland last summer and I remember sitting down at one point to drink some orange juice because I had a low and I saw a different brand of testing strip on the ground. And, you know, of course, I was just – I was laughing so hard because I was like, somewhere in this airport, there's another diabetic, you know? <laughs> it's so true. I yeah. love when I see those those test strips lighting around. Yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They fall out of my hair, I swear. Um, yeah, the one thing I think I would I would tell another diabetic if I had no other time is don't be afraid to connect and don't be afraid to reach out for help because I think that I um, – struggled so long with trying to figure out, figure it out on my own. And, you know, I, I honestly think that help, um, was just an internet search away back in the day. And I'm sure there, there are wonderful groups, uh, just to get together and support each other, um, in cities all throughout the United States. And even if 
there's not one in your city, um, that's like the beauty of the internet. You know, you can connect like we're connecting now. Um, and it's such a lonely place if you are too scared or too ashamed, you know, to reach out. And I've been there thinking, uh, you know, why can't I figure this out? I'm not a dumb person, but I'm having so much trouble figuring it out. And it's so much better when you distribute that, um, that load to other diabetics who are more than happy to share that with you. I couldn't agree more. Man, that is super, super powerful. Um, you know, this age of the internet, you know, there's so much, there's so much great information out there. Uh, and you know, I think social media gets a lot of negative, uh, backlash in the media these days, mm -hmm. uh, for good reason. But, uh, the power of community, especially within the type one diabetes community has been nothing short of incredible, um, to me personally. And I know to many others. And so, yeah, I would echo that. Don't be afraid to connect. Don't be afraid of, of anything related to that. I'm, I'm all about, um, I'm banishing fear right now, 2018 for anybody, uh, anybody who's making decisions about their diabetes or about their life based on fear, uh, reach out, let's connect because I'm a hundred percent ready to, uh, to get you turned around and moved on to making better decisions based on other factors. Um, and I, and I totally echo that sentiment a hundred percent. Yeah, could not agree more. Banish that fear. Yeah, reach out. We're here. We are. Yeah, and you know what? Ask for help. We talked about that earlier too. Um, yeah, you will be so surprised uh, how those fears that you convince yourself that people uh, in your head that uh, that you shouldn't ask for those for things. Uh, please allow yourself to be completely, completely uh, surprised by how good people are and how much they're willing to help you. One hundred percent. Yeah, could not agree more. Jonathan, man, uh, this has been, uh, we're like an hour and five minutes now into this, uh, into this episode. And this has been, man, I know we could probably go for another hour and talking about this. And I actually would welcome you to come back anytime, um, and, and do that. Um, but I'm so super, super, super grateful that, uh, that you reached out. And I think you heard about, um, uh, me from Lauren Bongiorno's Instagram, who's, I did, yeah. who's a big, I'm a, I am a big fan of, and I'm actually going to get to meet in person in a couple weeks, uh, as she comes to Dallas, uh, for our JDRF type one nation event. Oh, that's uh, so cool. So I will be sure to mention this, uh, to her when I get to meet her. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and like you said, yeah, it's been an incredible conversation. Easily could go for hours and hours talking about this kind of stuff. Um, with that in mind, um, I'd love to have you back. But I'd also, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way is email the JDT2015 at stanford.edu. Great. And, uh, if they, uh, maybe we're going to uh, I'm going to include your email in the show notes, but maybe if they wanted to get in touch with you via social media, any other, uh, platforms that you would uh, recommend they connect you with? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm on Instagram, uh, at, uh, Jonathan, J O N A T H A N underscore D A V I D underscore T I J E R I N A. Great. Well, I will include links to both of those in the show notes and, uh, and until then, my friend, uh, yeah, great to meet you. And you know what? Sikkim Bears, my little brother, graduated from Baylor. So, uh, yeah, Sikkim Bears, go hard, definitely. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, great. Well, we will be in touch, my friend. Wonderful. Enjoy Dallas. Have a good one.